All right, Genesis chapter six, if you turn in your Bibles there, uh, we are, uh, today we're gonna look at the life of Noah uh, and I'm gonna real quickly hit uh, really chapters five all the way through chapter nine. So we should be here, you know, three hours or so and uh, 11.30 will come in and just squeeze in so they can fit. So um, today we're gonna walk through Genesis six through nine, the account of Noah and the flood. But in order for us to understand Genesis six through nine, we, we have to take a couple minutes to unpack what happened from Genesis three to Genesis six. So beginning in Genesis three, we see the effects of sin as sin entered the world through individuals, right? Through Adam and Eve, and that is original sin when sin infects the human heart. And then we see that it is passed down generationally to their family. Uh, we saw in chapter four, Cain and Abel, right? And Cain killed Abel. Uh, if you were here last week, you remember we were looking at the two stories and how many similarities there were uh, in Genesis chapter three and Genesis chapter four in these two occurrences. And what we decided was it's the cycle of sin. That is what sin does. It's not what happened, it's what happens when sin enters the picture. I think I just swallowed a fly. Um, so sin entered an individual in chapter three, entered a family in chapter four. It infects society through a bloodline in chapter five. If you go through and read through the account of chapter five, it talks about from Adam all the way to Noah and all the people that lived and died and how long they lived. And here's what we know. Sin was being passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. And here's how we know that because as we get into chapter six, we'll see the effect that evil had on the world. So as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking about, do y'all remember uh, in uh, January 2020, uh, this uh, pandemic, this, this disease that was being talked about called yes. COVID-19? Everybody remember that? Yes. Yeah, in Montgomery County, we pretended like that didn't exist, but, uh, but, but in the world, and I say that facetiously, man, it, it hit our church body hard. We have several people that passed away as a result of COVID-19. It was a very tough season. And so uh, to get away from the politics involved with COVID-19, here's what we know. It started in a small region in Wuhan, China. And by mid-2020, why are you amening that? Okay, again, politics, no. All right, so you don't have to amen everything. All right, so... Penalty box, five minutes penalty box. <laughs> we have to do this every once in a while, right? Okay. <laughs> Wuhan, China, amen. <laughs> what? Okay. <laughs> I think everyone has said it, Sheila. Okay, so that's where it started. But think about within just a few months, it has spread all over the world. I mean, have you, have you really thought about the fact that what started right there? I mean, within a very short time, you hear about it. And then if you're like me, I'm thinking about, well, that's on the other side of the world. Surely it's not gonna make it all the way to America, all the way to God's country, right? And then uh, suddenly we start hearing of case after case after case. By mid-June 2020, I got it. And, and, and uh, because of all the fear and uncertainty of what was going on, we didn't, we didn't know what was happening. We just knew that a bunch of people were dying. 
And, and eventually it was spread all over the world, infecting close to 600 million people. 600 million people. That, that's really not in doubt. Uh, the 6 million people that died from it over a couple of years, um, how that happened, we're not really sure. But here's what we know. A whole lot of people were infected by this disease that just traveled from this very small place all over the world. And so as I was thinking about it, I mean, that's a picture of sin. Sin entered the world through an individual in the garden and within a very short time, it infected the entire world. It was passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation and so on and so on and so on and so on to right here today in 2022. That we're all born with this infection called sin. Start small, spreads like a wildfire. And if you've been involved in habitual sin in your life, you, you know that to be true. It starts small. And once you uh, give it just a little bit of life, it spreads like wildfire. And it will kill you if you let it. So as we move into uh, Genesis 6, 1 through 4, I want to address this real quickly uh, uh, before we get into the meat of what I want to talk about today. Because if you've read through the Bible in a year, you've gotten to Genesis chapter 6, um, verses 1 through 4. And since we started Genesis, the number one question that I've gotten is, hey, are you going to address the Nephilim? And so how many of you have ever wondered, who are the Nephilim? Anybody? Okay. So if you haven't, uh, I'm about to kind of get into it, all right? So uh, let me just read it real quick. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of human and had children by them. They were heroes of old, men of renown. So um, that's confusing, right? And so uh, here's what I want to say about that passage. We don't have any idea who the Nephilim are, who the sons of God that we're talking about. And here's why. There's very little information, information given. So it's talked about and it's really not talked about again. And so scholars postulate on, on who they might mean. So some scholars believe that these may be angels, uh, but when you look in the whole context of scripture, it was not common practice that angels would come and, and cohabitate with humans and create godlike beings. And so I think we can safely say that's probably not what it's talking about. Um, here's what's interesting. Um, the original readers likely understood what they were talking about. The original readers, Moses, who's believed to have written this, I think he didn't feel like he needed to fill in the blanks because probably the Nephilim and these sons of God was a pretty common idea. In fact, in a Mesopotamian literature, uh, it would favor that gods were rulers of that time that saw themselves as half God, half man. And so it's more an idea that, that men would kind of raise themselves up to God-like status. We know that in the book of Revelation, many scholars believe that the Antichrist, they were talking about Caesar because Caesar claimed to be God. 
And so that was part of the indictment on that season of life that Rome was this power base and that Caesar was the Antichrist. But we've seen that cycle over and over and over, right? And so I think it's pretty safe. What I believe is that these sons of God would be parentheses, meaning that they were actually humans claiming to be God and they were going around raping and pillaging and taking women as collateral for whatever they wanted. And it caused God to say in verse three, my spirit will not contend with humans forever for they are mortal. That word mortal in the Hebrew means corrupt. So he's basically saying, listen, I'm done with sin. Because of what these uh, sons of God, these rulers are doing, they're going through villages and taking uh, women as collateral. Uh, it, It was just a picture of evil at the time which will feed into our passage today. And then he says, hey, 120 years will be the lifespan. Uh, That can mean one of two things. Uh, It was about 120 years from that point that the flood came. And so he could be saying, listen, I'm wiping out the earth in 120 years. Or it could be that he's just cutting it off, that the lifespan would no longer be, you know, 900 years like Methuselah, that he's saying, hey, you will have a shorter life. But what we know is that sin was running rampant. And so another interesting cycle in Genesis 6 through 9, uh, uh, we're gonna see this cycle. Remember last week we saw the cycle of sin, but now we're gonna see the recreation story. We're gonna see creation all over again. And so for y'all, you probably knew all this, but as I'm studying the book of Genesis, for the first time, I'm seeing things that I never really uh, did a deep dive on. And so it's really interesting that we see in uh, this Noah narrative, we see creation happen all over again. So uh, in Genesis 1-2, if you remember, it says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deeps, the surface of the water. And who was hovering over the waters? The spirit of God, that word ruach. It means spirit. It can also mean breath or wind. And it is used over and over in these first few chapters. In in Genesis 3-8, It says that the man and his wife heard the sounds of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That word cool right there is the word ruach. So it's this breeze. You could almost say that the spirit of God was going before God, was kind of moving before him. But this whole idea of ruach in the cool of the day, Genesis 6, 3 which we just read, uh, then the Lord said, my spirit, Ruach, will not contend with humans forever, meaning that the spirit of God is the sustainer of life. In Genesis 6, 17, we see, I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it, Ruach. The spirit is the breath of life. Genesis 7, 22 Everything on dry land that had the ruach in its nostrils died. And then we see in Genesis 8, 1, just like in creation. But God remember Noah and all the animals and livestock that were with him and he sent what? A wind, ruach over the earth. The same wind that was hovering, the same spirit that was hovering over the waters in Genesis 1, 2 is now hovering over the waters in Genesis 8. 
one. So why is that important? We just see, again, this cycle, this narrative of creation because once the waters recede, what happens? The land comes up. Is that familiar? The land comes up just like the land was created in Genesis 1 and then man and animals now are inhabiting the earth and what is his edict to them? Be fruitful and multiply. When have we heard that before? Do you see it? I mean, the cyclical narrative, here's what it reminds us of. God never changes. God's pretty much hitting, you know, a, a, a driver straight down the fairway every time. And his aim is dead, solid, perfect. And we see this creation story and then this recreation story. But the most important thing we see in this cycle is the justice of God and the grace of God. So if you're one of those, how could a loving God send people to hell? Well, here's what I need you to know. So let me be real clear about it. God has to judge sin. That is the justice of God. God judges sin always. You are not the exception. We talked about it last week. So God always judges sin. But let me also say, God doesn't send people to hell. People send people to hell. Because while we live under the justice of God, because of Jesus, we live under the grace of God which means he has provided a way of escape, a way of rescue. We'll see it in the passage today. Amen. So the justice of God and the grace of God both exist and they both exist in this passage. God is not an angry, vengeful God who gets nice in the New Testament. He's a God that loves his people, but he has to judge sin because that is in his nature. Okay, so with that as a backdrop, let's see what we can learn from the life of Noah. Are y'all with me? Okay, starting in verse five. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them animals, birds, creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I've made them heavy. So in verse five, he says, hey, listen, every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Yes. What does that say? It says that things were really jacked up that the world was dark, that, that, that the human race, humankind had given itself over to sin in such a way that there was no turning back. The infection was deep. But here are some context clues that God was not vengeful. It says he was deeply troubled. He wasn't angry, he was sad. He was deeply troubled that, that man's free will had taken them to this point. But then it says twice that he regretted that he had made man. So this word regret in the Hebrew in this context is more of an accounting term. 
So this is where the justice and grace of God come in, that he's looking and he's like, listen, the, the accounting ledger is completely out of balance. Sin is taken over and now I've got to balance the ledger. And that's what it's saying right here. This, this idea of regret is actually God saying, I've got to set the record straight. I've got to bring all sin to account because it's out of balance. So here's where we meet Noah. Look at verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. When every inclination and thought of the human heart was evil all the time, there was this flickering light in the darkness. When is it the easiest to see light? When it's dark. And so imagine that, that Noah was the only one on earth that God looked at and said, look, there is a flickering light. There's hope. Noah found favor in a dark world. He sees this light. It, it actually reminds me of the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 16, when he says, hey, in the same way, he talks about this city on a hill or hide it under a bushel. No. And, and then, then he says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine. This picture of light in dark places. What was it about Noah that stood out? Verse nine, it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So he's a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah sought righteousness. Noah sought right standing with God. It was important to him, but he also had a good reputation with people. When people looked at him, they saw something that was different and his reputation in his community was good. But here's what's most important. He walked faithfully with God. Yes. He walked faithfully with God. So uh, here's what I want you to think about. If you wanna hear God's voice, it will be when you're in close proximity with him, when you are faithfully walking with him. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time with people and people will talk about, hey, I, man, I'm having trouble kind of discerning God's voice. And my first question is, well, tell me about your daily time with him. Uh, like, like, are you in this secret place every day? Are you studying the scriptures? Are you opening up the word and, and just sitting unhurried time asking him to speak to you? I, I mean, no, not really. Okay, well, that's step one. That's step one. If you, if you want to hear God's voice, if you want to understand what he's trying to communicate to you, I would think that the first place to look is, are you showing up every day to have a conversation with him? Are you opening the scriptures and saying, speak to me through your word? Are, are, you, are you sitting in the stillness with him and inviting him to give you those nudges, that intuition, that spiritual intuition that, that you hear and feel him moving you in a particular direction? Are you asking God, God, give me dreams and visions of what your plans are for me? Because we've seen throughout scripture that he does all of those things. And you can argue, well, all of those gifts died with the apostles. And I would say, show me the verse and I'll believe that because it doesn't say that anywhere in scripture. 
And so God didn't just speak then, he still is speaking today. He's still moving today and wooing us with his presence. But you gotta be in close proximity or you'll never really understand. And so many of us, uh, we're, we're unwilling to get in that place and then we're asking why don't we hear? So when we look at a compatible passage in Hebrews chapter 11, this is known as the hall of faith. And in verse seven, the writer of Hebrews says, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen and holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So we see three things about Noah in Hebrews chapter 11 that we'll find in this passage as we walk through. Uh, uh, first, that Noah heard and responded to God. Secondly, that Noah rebuked the world through a countercultural life. And then third, Noah became an heir or a banner of God's righteousness. So I wanna unpack those three concepts as we walk through. So let's look at these three things. First, he heard and responded to God. So uh, we see in verse 13, so God said to Noah, I'm gonna put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So here's what I love, God confided in Noah. God confided in Noah. God trusted Noah with this information. God told him about his view of earth and his plan to destroy it. But why? Why did he choose Noah? Because Noah was living in close proximity to him. Noah was a light in a dark world. Noah found favor in God's eyes because of the product of his life. And because of that, God trusted Noah. And here's the question, when you think about the product of your life, does God trust you? Are you an intimate of the Lord's? Are you someone with whom, because of your relationship with him, he feels like that he can uh, lean in and, 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 and talk with you or lean in and show you through the scripture, the plans that he has put into place for you? He confided in Noah and what did he ask him to do? Make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out. So no big deal. He just says, hey, Noah, build a giant boat in a desert. <laughs> Think about that. I mean, we don't know Noah's life, but uh, I don't think that he was like in a long line of shipbuilders, right? They lived in a really kind of arid region. It wasn't like they were surrounded by water. He probably didn't even know what a boat was. And so when, when, when God says, hey, Noah, I want you to build this big giant boat, right where you are. That's bizarre. It doesn't seem to make sense. And even crazier, it was as long as a football field and about four stories high. I mean, it was a typical NFL stadium. One man, one man, he comes and says, build this monstrosity from about to wipe out humankind. 
that had to have been a little overwhelming to Noah, right? Yes. I mean, think about his mindset. He had to rationalize in his mind that the, the massive un- undertaking of building this massive structure with no real knowledge of how to do it was actually doable. It made no sense in what was in front of him. This dry land with a bunch of trees. I mean, if Noah only responded with what he could see, he probably would have died with the rest of humanity, right? Seems like this crazy undertaking. But Noah, walking in close proximity with God, believed what was unseen. He believed what he couldn't see. And look, look at what it says. If you jump down to verse 22, it says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah did what? Everything. What? Say it like you mean it. Everything. Yeah, he did everything just as God commanded him. So think about your life. Maybe you feel impressed by the Lord that you're supposed to do something. How many times do you go, I feel impressed that God's leading me to do something and then you immediately start spreadsheeting the plan and you come up with your A through G, right? And you're like, hey God, I've got the plan, now bless it. And he's like, okay, cool. I've given you step one. Yeah, but I, I, need, I need the plan, right? And imagine Noah is looking out over the land. All he sees is a bunch of trees. Uh, and he's like, okay, I don't know what to do. And the thing is, if God had given him A through G, that's not faith. That's good eyesight. Noah, do you trust me? Do you, tr- do you trust me? Man, what is up? Uh, and here it says, he heard and he obeyed. James 1.22 says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. So I would say that uh, you'll probably forget somewhere between 85 and 90% of what's said this morning, uh, maybe more. Maybe you checked out a while ago. Uh, and, uh, and, and so you'll leave today and you'll, here's what you'll remember. Yeah, he talked about Noah. I'm pretty, yeah, Noah, I think it's what he talked about. Um, well, what, what were the points? I don't, I don't really know. And so here's the thing. Hearing the word is one thing, doing something about it is another. The application of not just being a hearer, but a doer. And so many of us, man, I hear it all the time. Man, I'm just hungry for deep teaching. Pastor, bring the deep teaching. And every time that's said, my first response is, that's awesome. What are you doing with what you already know? Because for a lot of us, we're not even living up to what we know. Amen. We got some work to do. And, and God is a very simple God. Hear it, obey it. Hear it, obey it. And he loved Noah's obedience. Noah, it says, did everything that God commanded him to do. So here's a question I have for you. What ark is God calling you to build? When you think about your life, I mean, we talk a lot about Ephesians 2.10. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. That means that before the foundation of the world, there is a unit, something he created you and only you to do. And he wants to activate you into that calling because when you are living into your calling, you change the world. So in this passage, man, what ark is he calling you to build? 
What is, what is the thing that he's calling you to do that is bigger than you? For a lot of us, that's kind of hard to come by because we've got some ideas, but here's what happens so often in our lives. We hear uh, the call of God and it seems like bigger than we can really grab onto and so we dumb it down to what we can accomplish. Because this God dream just seems too good to be true. And no, it is. That's why you need God to do it. It was never your job to just go out and figure out what makes you feel better, what, what you can accomplish so that you get hoisted up on everybody's shoulders and carried out of the stadium. Amen. No, what God dream has he placed on your life and, and what ark has he called you to build? And the question is, have you, have you dumbed down that calling to something that only you can accomplish? There's a bigger assignment on our lives. And are you living in close enough proximity for God to confide in you what it is he has for you? So I was just thinking about a few examples, but I, I think about uh, Wes Lambert and Jeremy Gonski. They were in Haiti and, and they wanted to support Core Love in some way. And then they're like, hey, let's do it with coffee. And so they came back and they started Love Coffee that many of you frequent in the Wood Forest area. Uh, we've got uh, Love Coffee out here in the lobby every Sunday morning. But that started with this calling of we have to do something. And now they are changing the world through coffee. I don't drink coffee, but it's probably awesome. Uh, uh, the, the Beasleys with Journey Home, that God placed on their heart this calling to help teenage unwed pregnant moms, to help walk them through, to help uh, for them to, to not just give birth, but to help them find their future. And then they bring Robin and Julie Marlowe along to be house parents, to be a part of this movement. And now because of the Beasley's obedience, now Robin and Julie are living into their calling in this season. Think about uh, the Middlebrooks with Hug Collective that they are uh, really uh, uh, in, in Haiti helping Haitian young men get educated yeah. to find a hope and a future. John Cadillac and and the other Greg Johnson, please don't call him Big Greg um, because that's really not cool. Um, they have a ministry called Surrender and there are military personnel, first responders, people that are dealing with PTSD and every couple of Mondays they meet at Love Coffee to just talk about life and hope and healing and it was all birthed out of their pain and their experience. So I could go on and on, but for the sake of time, here's my question. What ark is God calling you to build? Like if we're an aircraft carrier and, 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 and our calling is to release you into your full potential in the kingdom of God, what that tells me is we need a whole fleet of arks. Man, just imagine on, on the sea, a, a whole bunch of arks moving into enemy territory for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's you. Amen. The ark that God's calling you to build. Amen. And he wants to dream big dreams yeah. in all of us. So Noah heard, he responded. Secondly, Noah rebuked the world through his countercultural life. It's interesting the choice of words that the writer of Hebrews paints this picture of Noah as a preacher. 
because the narrative never says that he opened his mouth or said a word. They paint him as kind of this fiery Turner burn evangelist. But Genesis never spoke of that happening. Here's what we know. He was roughly 500 when he started building the ark. He was roughly 600 when the flood came. Do that math. That's 100 years. So for those of you that are like me that have a hard time concentrating for more than like 30, 45 minutes at a time, can you imagine getting up every day for 100 years with one thing on your mind? No, No, seriously. Can you imagine that? I mean, that would be mind-numbing for me. And yet Noah, at the, at the ripe young age of 500, <laughs> gets out of bed every day and he's got his mind set on one thing, build the ark, build the ark, build the ark, build the ark. For over 100 years, build the ark. And what happened during that 100 years? Second Peter 2.5 speaks to it. Uh, it says, if he did not spare the ancient world, when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. Again, Peter talks about him as a preacher of righteousness. And what was Noah's message? Judgment's coming. How did he preach? By building a big honking boat in a desert. Imagine every day, day after day, the people in the surrounding villages, you could probably see this thing from miles away and they would see it and they're like, what is that crazy old man doing? And day after day, it doesn't tell us that his three sons helped, but I'm sure that they jumped in and helped at some point during that hundred years. And day after day after day was an indictment on the current climate because God had told him to build an ark. Imagine his three sons sitting at the dinner table. Now, tell us why we're building this again. Noah, with every tree he chopped down, he was preaching to the world from a place of obedience. St. Augustine, I know you've heard this before. He said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Amen. What does that mean? Hey, listen, talk is cheap, y'all. And you may be the best apologist in the world, but the question is, does your heart reflect Jesus? Are you living a life worthy of the calling you've received? Preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. I mean, that's fascinating. And never said he said a word, and yet people refer to him as a preacher of righteousness. Light is a rebuke to darkness. Why? Because of the contrast. And so here's my question. Is your life a rebuke to the world? When people look at your life, do you live so counterculturally that that your life is so in contrast to the rest of the world that they're like, hey, um, something's up with you. You don't do things like the world does. And unfortunately, The reason that the American church is dead in so many ways is because we live a religious life that looks just like the world and we slap Christianity on it and call it good. What would it be like if our life were countercultural? 
If we were living for another kingdom and not our own kingdom, if we're not Jesus, I like you a lot. I say I love you, but in reality, I like you a lot. But I just don't want you to get in my way. I got stuff to do. And God, I'll give you my life except my career. I'll give you my life except my family. I'll give you my life except my entertainment. Does your life look different than the world? What does a countercultural life look like? We could probably start with the fruit of the Spirit and work out from there. Galatians 5, and 23, I quote it all the time. The fruit of the Spirit, the characteristics that the Spirit brings on the life of everyone who said yes to Jesus is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It is an internal state of your life when you say yes to Jesus. And so if you are living outside of that fruit, it means that you're not accessing what's in you or whatever you did was just transactional and you've never really fully received Jesus on the inside. Because here's what we know. We can access love when we need it because of the spirit that lives in us. We can access patience. Amen? Patience? Whew. Yeah, I need to access that more. We can access self-control when we need it. And guess what? That's a countercultural life. Because our culture, those nine characteristics are at a deficit in our culture. And it's, it's needed so badly for people that claim to be followers of Jesus to start living like followers of Jesus. Amen. And as we do, we will look different than the world. Yes. Come on, y'all. That's good news. Yes. And you should be encouraged that there are 400 plus people in this building, including kids, 600 plus people in this building today, that if we all said today, I am going to live a countercultural life, look around, you'll be in good company. And guess what? That's what changes the world. Sorry, I don't mean to yell. I just get excited about this. Aren't you excited about it? Is your heart not burning that there's a better life to be lived? I mean, come on, y'all. I mean, this is the gospel. I mean, Jesus didn't give like two, like, hey, listen, starter kit Christianity. Just do these things. Show up on Sundays, maybe a first Wednesday, if you have nothing better to do, and then try to be good. That is not the way of Jesus. In fact, Jesus keeps upping the requirements. When he says, hey, don't commit adultery, you've heard it said that. I'm saying, don't even look at another woman with lust in your heart. What? Every time we see the law, he obliterated the law because it's a matter of the heart. And we've got to start living from a heart position instead of just slapping Christianity on stuff and calling it good. Truly living in contrast to the world. Ooh, I can keep going. All right. So here's the deal from the time it started flooding, 150 days, 150 days to recede. So they're in the ark for about a year. Imagine the smell, first of all, all those animals. And so here they are. He comes up on the deck and he looks out and all he can see is water day after day. If you're on a cruise, that's a good thing. If you're not, that's not a good thing. And can you imagine over time he's wondering, has God forgotten his promise? Has God forgotten me? He put me out on this boat. Now where is he? What's he doing? Where, where, where is this all going, God? I was obedient to you. Here I am. 
look at what it says in Genesis 8.1. But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. In the middle of the flood, in the middle of the chaos, he was not forgotten. In fact, his assignment didn't change at all. God didn't change his mind. God didn't get sidetracked and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. oh, sorry, Noah. I, I was busy destroying the earth. Uh, let, me, let me get back with you. No, God had a plan. He had a mission. And know this, in your life, you may be in the middle of the water. You may be looking out and not seeing land. You may be wondering what comes next. You may feel forgotten by God, but know this. Whatever God starts, he finishes. Amen. It's who he is. Yes, he is. Philippians 1.6 being confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to what? Completed till the day of Christ Jesus. It's what God does. He finishes what he starts. When I felt called to plant a church in uh, February of 2013, once I confirmed uh, through uh, mentors and I knew that was what God was calling me to do, even though it made no sense, and I'm asking the Lord, what, what is the first step? He said, sell your house. And I'm like, no, 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 that's like step three or four. No, step one, like, like education, church planning conference, like literally anything besides that. And every time I would pray, all that I just kept hearing was sell your house, sell your house, sell your house, sell your house. And the minute we were obedient to saying, God will follow you wherever, however, um, immediately, we got a full price offer for our house. They paid cash. They let us set our closing date. And within 30 days, we were like completely uh, homeless and, uh, uh, and, and our debt was completely paid off and we were prepared for whatever God had next. I think for a lot of us, you, you hear God saying something on repeat and you're like, awesome, give me step two, three, and four and I'm all in. And again, that's not faith. That's good eyesight. Yes. He's like, do you trust me? Do you trust me to build an ark in the desert? Do you trust me to, to sell your house? Even though you don't know what comes next? And it wasn't until six months later that Jeff Wells had a dream that they were planting a church in Wood Forest and I was the pastor. Man, I'm so glad that I trusted God. Or I might be still sitting somewhere wondering, God, what is it that you have for me next? And you know what he would keep saying over and over again? Sell your house, sell your house. For some of you, you need to hear that this morning. There are things that God has placed in your heart to do and all he wants is for you to be faithful to him and just know what he starts, he finishes. He doesn't forget you. He has not forgotten you. Whatever's going on in your life, as painful as it may be in the moment, God has not forgotten you. He is in the business of completing what he starts. And then finally, Noah became an heir of righteousness. In chapter six, verse 18, he tells him, he foretells him, I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your wife and your son's wives with you you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Uh, what, he, what he's saying is, listen, he's, he's, uh, 
promises he's gonna establish a covenant. And then in Genesis 9, 9, after they walk out of the ark on dry land, what happens? I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. What he starts, he finishes. He tells him the covenant's coming and on the other side of the flood, when they are now on dry land, when they are now part of this recreation story, he continues what he starts. Noah believed in what he couldn't see, what wasn't clearly in front of him. And guess what the result was? Life. Life. First Peter 2, 9. This is for you and me. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises he called you out of what? Darkness and into what? His wonderful light. It's who you are. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession. This is not just for the Jews. This is for all of us. In Jesus, we have been restored to our original intention. Romans 8, 17 says that we are co-heirs. If we are children, that we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. It means that now you don't have to walk with your head hung low. You're not sneaking in to the kingdom. You don't get up against the pearly gates like I just snuck in here. No. As carriers of kingdom DNA because of Jesus, you are now a part of a royal bloodline. Come on, y'all, that's good news. And you can celebrate that today. When you feel less than, if you have said yes to Jesus, you are a part of the royal bloodline. God gave Noah a lifeline and ark to preserve the future for you and me. And here's what I want you to think about. Here's where we land. If you want to look for Jesus, he's on every page of the Bible. Guess where Jesus is in this passage? He's the ark. He is the vehicle of rescue. You on your best day, when you did not have what it took, Jesus became the ark on your behalf. And he says, get in the ark because I am going to take you. I am going to rescue you and take you to safety. That's who Jesus is. He is our rescue. He is our ark that takes us to life. Okay. I want to ask you four questions. And so um, I just want to give you some space. Just maybe just sit, close your eyes. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. But I just want you to get still for just a moment. And we're going to lower the lights just to give you some sacred space. Here are four questions that I want you to consider this morning. Number one, are you living in close proximity to hear and respond to God's call? Are you living in close proximity to hear and respond to God's call? This is a picture of your devotional life, a picture of your quiet time, your secret place with the Lord? Are you living in close proximity to him? Number two, as a follower of Jesus, does your life 
stand in contrast to the world? Maybe a compatible question with that. Is there any place in your life that looks too much like the world and it doesn't stand in contrast? Number three, how are you living as an heir to the throne in the kingdom of God? How are you living as an heir to the throne in the kingdom of God? What that means is, are you living like royalty? Are you living like you belong to something greater, something bigger? Are you living in such a way that you have the confidence that God is with you, that the kingdom of God is with you wherever you go? Are you shying away when it's your time, when God is pushing you into the forefront to to live a life worthy of his calling, live a life as an heir, a co-heir with Jesus? Number four, what ark is God calling you to build? What dream is he dreaming in you? What is it spiritually speaking in your life that's bigger than you that you just can't not do? 